The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly guest Dharma series. Uh, so the um, kind of topic that I wanted to uh, bring in tonight uh, is uh, path. So this concept of path, and in particular, I want to talk about it as both a relational and a personal uh, process of awakening. And to sort of set the uh, context for this, um, I'm going to read several different voices. And so these are different voices. I I think it's particularly important to hear different voices. And in the different voices, uh, you'll hear different things. And so the very first uh, voice that I'm going to read is actually just from the... uh, the words of the Buddha as best uh, as we know them, uh, uh, they've been recorded. And then the other two voices are a little bit different. So let me start just with the voice of the Buddha. And this is what he had to say about a path, about a path in particular. He said, suppose a person wandering in a forest wilderness found an ancient path, an ancient trail, traveled by beings of old, and that this person followed this path up, and by doing so, the person discovered an ancient city, an ancient royal capital, where beings of old had lived, with parks and groves and lakes, walled round and beautiful to see. I have discovered this ancient path, traversed by the fully enlightened ones of former times. And what is this ancient path? It's the noble eightfold path. That is, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Along this path I have gone, and going along it I have fully come to know aging and death, their origin, their cessation, and the way leading to cessation. So that was uh, the Buddha talking about uh, the Eightfold Path, so this concept of path. That's one voice. And before I go to the next uh, voices, I just want to offer a little bit of a cautionary note, which is that with any metaphor, the metaphor is limited. So we have to be a little bit careful. We hear the word path, and it's helpful as a metaphor but it's also not necessarily fully complete, just as any metaphor is not complete. So there's this interesting paradox, which is that when we talk about uh, practice or we talk about a path, that uh, it's actually a both and. So I'm going to be talking about it in terms of the personal and the relational, but I also want to talk about it as It's a path, and it's immediate. It's already here. So this is an interesting paradox, because there you'll hear different voices of it's a journey that one has to go on, and there are these stages on the journey, and things happen, and we understand we have experiences. And then there's the other voice or view that basically says it's already here, but we just don't recognize it. It's here right now in the moment, and all we have to do is trust our own wisdom 
trust in our own awareness, our own experience, and it will unfold. It will do its natural process of unfolding. So I want you to hold both of these. So I'm going to describe it and talk about it as the path because that's the way it's often presented in Buddhism. But it's also this other piece of it's immediate. It's here and now. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So the other voices I want to bring in, uh, the first is the poet uh, Mary Oliver. And the second is um, a piece that comes from uh, the Hopi elders. So the first piece uh, of Mary Oliver's, the poem is called The Journey. And as I read it, I want you to just see if you can hear this quality of uh, the personal, of the path aspect of it. Okay? So one day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night, and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So that's the second voice. The third voice... It's called Hopi Elders Speak. And I want you to see if you can hear the relational quality of it, as well as the immediacy. You have been telling people that this is the 11th hour. Now you must go back and tell people that this is the hour. And there are things to be considered. Where are you living? What are you doing? What are your relationships? Are you in right relation? Where is your water? Know your garden. It's time to speak your truth. Create your community. Be good to yourself and not look outside of yourself for a leader. This could be a good time. There is a river flowing very fast. It is so great and fast that there are those who will be afraid. They will hold on to the shore they will feel that they are being torn apart and they will suffer greatly. Know that the river has its destination. The elders say that we must let go of the shore, push off into the middle of the river, keep our eyes open and our heads above the water. See who is in there with you and celebrate. At this time, we are to take nothing personally, least of all ourselves. For the moment that we do, our spiritual growth comes to a halt. The time of the lone wolf is over. Gather yourselves. Banish the word struggle from your attitude and your vocabulary. All that we do now must be done in a sacred manner and in celebration. We are the ones we have been waiting for. So again, a different voice. 
So where to begin? Where do we even approach uh, this as a practice? I think it's a really great question. We have these beautiful different voices, and each one has something to add. And there are many other voices, just to say that these were only three. What I hope to do is to not necessarily present you with um, the kind of detailed lists and information that you can find, you can read. You can read about kind of the classical definition of the Eightfold Path and all the different parts. What I'd rather talk about is to explore these voices as the mechanics or the process of how this unfolds and how, more importantly, to start to think of this and putting it into practice and to actually to drop below and to integrate it, to make it a practice, to make it a process of awakening that is both personal and relational. So the best place um, that I can think to begin is in the present moment. So it's as Mary Oliver says, you finally knew what you had to do. Or it's not the 11th hour, but it's the hour, as the other voice suggested. So before we know what we have to do, or before we change our relationship to saying it's the hour, many of us can get caught, first of all, in the sense of sort of hopelessness. It's a sense of sometimes self-loathing. It can be a sense of uh, just despair about what's going on around us. It could be a bad diagnosis, uh, either for ourselves or for somebody else that we're close to. Death of a family member or a friend. It can even be the silencing of voices or the marginalization of entire groups. It can even be the destruction of the planet itself. So there's something in the moment that tells us a deeper wisdom is needed. And so it's at the very moment that we start to recognize that a deeper wisdom is needed that we have the first taste of hope. And this hope is to recognize that in the external situation, in the external ups and downs that we all encounter in our life, they're subject to change, that they're not fixed. And this is really important because if they were fixed, then there's nothing we could do. There's no path. There's nothing that could be done because things are already fixed. They're set. But the fact that they're not fixed, the fact that There is change, that there is this deeper truth. This is a moment of where we have the first, smallest breakthrough, where we discover that there may be another way to relate to our experience, both externally and internally. And so even if we can't control the external, which we can't, we all know that, we can't control the external, we can still find kindness, compassion, equanimity, and a way of relating to all of that experience. So I have just a very simple example. I can remember when I was eight or nine years old, and I had an uncle who I knew, but I didn't know that well. He uh, had married my aunt uh, and actually pretty quickly had become ill, and he had esophageal cancer, so he was a, a smoker, and he had smoked his entire life. And I remember uh, learning that uh, he had died, and I was pretty young at the time. And that whole night, I just found myself 
crying uncontrollably. I was just crying on my pillow, struck by the reality of death. Of here is this person who is no longer here. And I remember it as this palpable moment of feeling sort of the ouch. And I didn't know what to do with it. I just was in it. I was there with it. And it wasn't until much later that that memory of the ouch resurfaced, but it resurfaced in a way of being able to connect with it and to relate to it from this deeper place of wisdom, of that there is a path that is possible, something that is deeper, that offers a much deeper truth into our experience and a way of holding what's actually happening both externally and internally. And so this perspective shift is actually the first part of path. And it's often talked about, and you heard in that first voice from the Buddha, as right view. It's an understanding of how those deepest aspects of our life operate. And on one level, it's just a simple understanding of cause and effect. So we have some sense that there is a cause and effect relationship. And on a deeper level, it's the knowledge that happiness or freedom or peace or whatever word you want to substitute that you aspire to, that it's not ultimately dependent upon the external circumstances. And this is where we start to touch into what in Buddhist terms is the Four Noble Truths. It's this deeper sense of relating to our experience and to life. There's a quote that I uh, just want to read. It actually comes from um, a question that the Dalai Lama uh, was asked. And I think it's a wonderful way that he responded. And so see if you can hear as he's talking about this shift from kind of one level, the level that we're often used to of our day-to-day life experiences, to this deeper level. So the Dalai Lama was asked, what is the meaning of life? The Dalai Lama answered immediately, the meaning of life is happiness. It's not a hard question. What is the meaning of life? That is an easy question to answer. No, the hard question is what makes happiness. Money, a big house, accomplishments, friends, or compassion and a good heart. This is the question that human beings must try to answer. What makes true happiness? So in the Buddhist context, it's said that this shift of perspective, of starting to look beneath, looking at the process itself, so the switch from happiness, which is the easy answer, to what makes happiness is a very important shift. And it's said that there are two conditions for the arising of this shift. It's the voice of another, which is beautiful because that's relational. It means that we have to hear from another person. And that in the hearing, in the relationship, there is the arising of a new perspective, of a new view, a new voice. The other condition is wise attention. So there's the personal. Actually staying with the experience and starting to really observe, cultivating the capacities of mindfulness and awareness to be able to perceive what's actually happening. So 
the big challenge then is how do we get rid of what are considered wrong views? And wrong views I want to shift a little bit to just thinking about in terms of distortions. We can think about them as all those uh, accumulated uh, beliefs, thoughts, ideas that we have from our own life experience, our individual human life experience, or from society, from culture, from the world that get imposed upon us. And so from the shift of that perspective, this idea of the right view where we're dropping below to that which is deeper, we then start to become curious about, well, what are the thoughts or the intentions or the motivations that are supportive of this new view, this view that what is makes what makes happiness, or in the classical terms, the four noble truths about how do we actually arrive at what's described as non-grasping or the cessation of suffering. And what we will find naturally arising is that the thoughts and the intentions and the motivations that are most supportive are those that are linked to non-harming, to non-ill will, and to simplicity. So the positive framings of these are kindness, their compassion, and their renunciation. So this is, I'm sure many of you know the phrase, live simply so that others may simply live. So there's this beautiful sense of how we naturally intuit those thoughts, intentions, and motivations that are supportive of this new view that we have. And so for me, this part of the path or the immediacy of dropping in just a little bit deeper, so holding both of these perspectives, it's the heart quality of the path. So it's rooted in our concern for our own well-being as well as the well-being of others, of actually the entire family of which we're a part of. So again, it's the personal and the relational. And so by intending no harm and no ill will and living simply, we are actually giving a gift to everyone else. By our living through those intentions and those motivations, it's a gift. And that is a manifestation or an expression of the heart itself. So this is the next natural kind of unfolding or process. It's into the movement of conduct or manifestation. So this is often within the Eightfold Path, the next section. So it's as though we have the view, we have the heart quality, the intentions, the thoughts, the motivations. We align the mind and the heart, and they're aspects of the same thing, but they're coming from different views And then when we align those, we move into conduct in the world. And so these are the areas that are often talked about as right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And so I'm not going to go into great depth, but I want to talk about how this works, the mechanics or the process of it. So with right speech, we understand that the power, uh, that language has power, that words have power. And we also undertake a refraining from speech which we know is going to undermine those motivations and those thoughts and those intentions that we set of non-harming. So we, if we know that something is going to cause harm, then we actually undertake the practice in our own conduct of not doing that, of refraining from that sort of speech. And there's a wonderful quote from Rumi, the Sufi poet, 
that talks about this. He says, know that a word suddenly shot from the tongue is like an arrow shot from the bow. So we have a sense of the power of language and speech. So we start to take care. There's that sensitivity again. The awareness itself starts to become sensitive. So the next piece is right action. And right action, I think one of the ways to think about this is it's really the precepts. It's those guidelines that we can agree to uh, as a community, and we take them on as a further manifestation of non-harming, of manifesting that view and manifesting those intentions or those thoughts. And so again, we can think of this as it's really a protection for ourselves at the first layer, but it's also a gift to everyone else that when we undertake precepts or guidelines or ways of living, non-killing, non-stealing, not using false speech, that that is a gift to everyone else. There is trust that can naturally develop within our relationships. And so from this right action, we're moving then now into right livelihood. And the essence of right uh, livelihood is really uh, working for the benefit of others. So we are avoiding, the way it's classically talked about, is we're avoiding work that requires deceit or that causes harm. So again, you can hear it traces all the way back to the view and to the intentions and the thoughts. And again, it's both personal and relational, so that we understand and we take care, so that we hope that what we do in the world is of benefit, it's of service to others. So it's at this point that we shift then into the final phase, which is often within um, a lot of uh, meditation circles, it's thought of as, well, this is the practice. But notice that it's quite far along before we get to this. And this is the mind and heart training. This is the meditation practice itself. But notice that it's come towards the end. It's not at the beginning. Actually, all of these other things have to precede it before we get there. And so with the heart and the mind trainings, we're now taking what we've manifested externally and we're now directing it back internally and we're cultivating it internally so that it becomes a symbiotic relationship, both the external and the internal. And so the first of these heart and mind trainings is right effort. And so... Right effort is a, effort in of itself is a loaded word. It's kind of interesting to think about. We are very good at efforting in this culture. In fact, we're too good at efforting. We get we often overstrive and uh, we tend to overdo the efforting part. But in this context, the effort is really it's the balancing of a sense of discipline, but a sense of discipline that's not rigid. It's a it's a discipline that understands all the way back to the view of the cause and effect, right, and what makes happiness. And it's also balancing that with ease, with flexibility and suppliability. So it's classically talked about as four right efforts. And I won't go into that because that could be a talk in of itself, but we can think about it as one way of thinking of this right effort is just seeing what are the obstacles that inhibit this natural arising of 
non-harming, and this connection with the deeper intuitive wisdom that we all have, that awareness that grows when we're in the present moment, when we come into our immediate experience. And so we can look at what are those obstacles and what is supportive to non-harming. What is it that is supportive to that aspiration of awakening and non-harming? So we start to understand both what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. And then we lean more in the direction of wholesome. So these can be the qualities of heart and mind that show up in our practice all the time, right? Where we can have that sense of uh, judging ourselves, of being critical, of feeling like we're not worthy. All these things that can show up. And we recognize that those are not supportive to our view or to our intention of the kindness, of the compassion. And so what we do in our practice is we learn to meet them, to acknowledge them and say, welcome, I see you. I'm not going to fight with you, but I want to be able to hold you, to have the experience of being able to meet you and to actually embrace that with this larger capacity. And so this is the the piece of the right effort of starting to intuit this in the internal space of our own experience, that which is wholesome and that which is unwholesome, that which is supportive and that which is unsupportive. So then we move to right mindfulness. So this is the next piece. And right mindfulness is really, we hear mindfulness all the time, but I I want you to think about it in terms of this, this open, receptive, and attentive and non-judgmental capacity that we all have. So it's attention plus an attitude. And one beautiful description I've heard of this is kindfulness. Think of it as kindfulness. Kindness plus mindfulness is kindfulness. I love that word. Um, So we can hold the view, and there's a a wonderful um, Burmese meditation master who says that we practice mindfulness meditation because we want to understand. So we hold the view that in our heart and our mind, that when we cultivate attention for the power of attention itself, then that leads to understanding. So I'll give you a simple example. So if we are sitting in meditation and we're aware of our breath and our body and all of a sudden boredom arises, we just... We see it, we're bored, and we initially don't notice it, so we go with it. We go with the boredom, and we just kind of get lost in it. We go, oh my goodness, all right, has this been 10 minutes, 15 minutes? I'm not sure. Okay, I get it. When are we going to stop? And we get lost in the boredom itself, right? It takes us on a little bit of a ride. And what the right mindfulness is doing is it's training us to actually notice what happens when we don't engage with it. We can acknowledge it, we can meet it, we can receive it, and we can say, yep, I see you, but let me stay with the larger field of knowing, the larger field of awareness itself. And when we do that, we start to feed awareness itself. We're cultivating the attention by being attentive so that it's a, it's a virtuous cycle, so that the attention grows of its own accord. And the natural bloom of attention is wisdom. It's an understanding. It shows up and it holds this larger field or this, this capacity to be with the experience. And we all have these. We have countless examples. Like we can substitute boredom for other states that show up in our practice. 
And so the last piece in what's considered this path is right concentration. But this, again, is a tricky word. Concentration, we, also, we often think of as focus, collapsing down and narrowing. I want you to think of it more as a stability of the awareness. It's a gatheredness or a collectedness. And the gatheredness or the collectedness of the attention itself is what allows it for, uh, to have a longer view. It's the view that knows the arc rather than just this immediate experience, which often we can get lost in fear or hopelessness. It's the arc that allows us to say the stability and the presence of mind actually can hold this, and it will start to unravel itself, because that is the power of stability and gatheredness of mind when it's collected. It's not fragmented. So that's this right concentration. So the idea is, the more that we stabilize the attention and the awareness, the more that wisdom becomes the default. That's the bloom of the concentration. So I'll give you a, an example of how maybe just one way I, I think of this. Think about um, the heart and the mind as a radio. Okay? So it's like the heart and the mind are a radio. And that there's this frequency that's always been broadcast. It's just been out there, right? And so in our practice, we're constantly churning the dial. We're trying to receive that station or that frequency of kindness, of attention, of openness, of peace, of happiness. And we keep searching for it, but we're getting noise. We're getting static. The radio is crackling, right? And then at some point, we have that moment where we pick up the station and we get the signal. It comes in very clearly. And we have, it may just be a moment, a fraction of a moment, but that's the bloom of wisdom. And when we hear that, then when the noise comes back, we turn the dial, things get chaotic in our life, whether it's externally, in our relations, in our work, in our job, or if it's internally with what's happening in our experience. The more that we have had that clear signal, even once, we can start to recognize it through the noise itself. So it's as though we can still pick up that frequency, even when we've moved from it just a little bit. And that's the power of wisdom. And so the last thing that I want to just mention is that it's not a, uh, it's described, uh, and the way that I was kind of walking through it is, it almost sounds linear, as though you're starting with the view, the intention, and then you move into kind of the ethical conduct, and then you move into the heart and mind training. But actually, it's an iterative process. And you've all had this experience, otherwise you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here interested. You wouldn't be here practicing. You wouldn't be here in a community. So you've all had the experience of an iteration of this process. And so that it actually moves and it is cyclical so that it actually will build on itself. And it is an unfolding. So this is the piece of it that's the process. It's as though we, once we set it in motion, its natural momentum is to keep going. So this is the paradox. It's like, it's how do you do the do the non-doing, right? How do you do the effortless effort? It's a really interesting. And when you look at the teachings, they're paradoxical, but that's the beauty of them because it's both the setting in motion, but then once it's set in motion, it unfolds. And there's one more piece that um, I just want to mention, which is this distinction between path and not path. So we can often get caught or stuck 
when we feel like we're not on the path or we've walked off the path, what, whatever our idea or view of that is. And so I want to just offer sort of a key concept, uh, which is that in Buddhism, the concept is that we struggle with delusion, we struggle with obstacles and wrong views and mistakes and obstructions of the heart and the mind all the way up until the very end. And it's a long, long journey. So the big piece is to um, just know that it means that we make mistakes. That's part of the path. That's part of this process of unfolding, both personal and relational. And the critical question is, what do we do when we have made a mistake? And it's something that is clearly not on the path. How do we hold that? How do we, how do we relate to that? And so this is where the concept of what's often called the two guardians of the world becomes really important. So I want to just talk about what these two guardians of the world are. Uh, the first one is conscience. So it's that inner voice, that guide. Uh, it can often be felt as just a sense of maybe remorse or regret. And the other one is concern. So it's the outer voice. It's what would the wise do or what would the wisdom of the community do? So we can almost open up the frame larger. So I'm just going to read a short quote um, from one of my teachers uh, talking about these two guardians. And so I want you to hear just a little bit about how we often relate to when we feel like we've made a mistake or we're not on the path and how we can then use this conscience, this inner voice, and the concern, the outer voice, to help hold and to connect us again with the path. So here's what uh, my teacher had to say. If we do not properly understand these two guardians, we could use some approximation of these qualities to bludgeon ourselves with guilt, recrimination, and feelings of unworthiness. On the other hand, we can hold them in the light of wisdom, This understanding manifests as holding a standard of behavior that can inspire restraint at critical moments or renewal in the many times that we fall short. We will get seduced many times, but having a reference point of understanding can can inspire us to simply begin again. A very helpful teaching is that it is better to do an unwholesome deed knowing it is unwholesome than to do it without that knowing. If we don't even know that something is unwholesome, then there is no motivation to change. But in knowing that something is unwholesome, even as we might be doing it, then the seeds of wisdom and future restraint are there. So in other words, it's when we feel the ouch, if we feel some sense of regret or remorse, then we can receive the feedback. That's what awareness does. Awareness is always knowing something. It's always receiving feedback. And so when we receive that feedback in our awareness, we we begin right where we are. We don't stay in the past. We actually begin right in this moment. And that's what reconnects us with the path or with the process of unfolding. And that doesn't mean that everything in the past is in the past and forgotten and it doesn't have any consequences, we likely will still feel the consequences in the present moment from prior actions. But the experience is one that helps us to determine, ah, this isn't where I want to go. This actually 
is how I'm going to proceed in the future. It's that wisdom of renewal, and that's what connects us again with the path. So there's an archetypal story within Buddhism. Uh, it talks about Angulimala. Probably many of you know the story of Angulimala, but Angulimala was, uh, he was actually a murderer. So he went around and he murdered a bunch of travelers. That's what he did. And he was called Angulimala because he would cut off their fingers and he would put them in the form of a mala and a necklace and he would wear it around his neck. And so he was this absolutely uh, feared figure. And it was said that uh, the Buddha perceived that Angulimala was on the cusp of being lost, of being so far off of this path of non-harming, of wisdom, of the kind of unfolding of the heart and the mind, that he knew that he had to intervene. He had to catch Angulimala before his next victim, which the Buddha saw in his, uh, in his vision as actually he was going to murder his mother. So he had to intervene, and he, and he stepped in. And what it said that he did is he kept using his abilities just in front of Angulimala. So Angulimala saw the Buddha and was running after him, trying to chase him down, trying to kill the Buddha. And he shouted out to the Buddha. He said, stop. And the Buddha turned around and looked at Angulimala and said, I have stopped. It's you that haven't stopped. And what he was referring to is the non-harming, the view, what Angulimala was caught up into. And it said that with that phrase, I have stopped. It's you that have not stopped. It was a moment where it shifted the perspective. And so Angulimala became a monk. So then it's an interesting question. What then happens to the community that says, wait a minute, there was a murderer, and now you're taking this murderer into the community? Well, this is where the consequences of prior actions still have effect. It said that he was stoned, he was beaten, his alms bowl was broken, he was bloodied, all these things when he went out into the community. And he would come back to the Buddha and he would say, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Right? I'm a monk now, I've, I've, done, I've committed to non-harming, I've changed my view. And the Buddha's response was, bear it. He said that the consequences of your prior actions still have an effect now, but that doesn't mean that you still can't walk the path now. You connect with it now. And that's the beauty of when we start to see this distinction between path and non-path, and to treat non-path as that which can inform us about saying, yes, I've learned. I know that that's not where I want to go. So I want to end just with a small um, quote, and then I'm going to kind of open it up for questions. And this is, what I was saying was, you know, didn't make sense or it was just too much, then see if you can just listen to this last uh, quote. And it actually comes from a very famous um, uh, scholar uh, who's also monastic. And this is the quote. One begins with a conceptual understanding of the Dhamma. And the Dhamma is just the truth of the way things are. So one begins with a conceptual understanding of the Dhamma and an intention to achieve the goal, the first two path factors. Then out of faith, one accepts the moral discipline regulating speech, action, and livelihood. With virtue as a base, one energetically applies the mind to cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness. So these are the mind trainings, right? The heart and mind trainings. As mindfulness matures, 
it issues in deepened concentration. And the concentrated mind, by investigation, arrives at wisdom, a penetrative understanding of the principles originally grasped only in concept. So it's a cycle. So this is what is often talked about as the path, and it is both personal and relational. I hope that you hear that, that it actually is the individual journey, but it's a journey in relation, and that's the important piece around community. And so the voices that I began with all offer different perspectives of this. And the challenge then is we set it in motion, but then we don't get stuck with the setting in motion. We don't continue to want to strive after it. We, once we've set it in motion, we trust. And when we trust, that's when we can drop into it right now. And it bears fruit right in the moment. So thank you for your kind attention. Uh, and I will open it uh, at this point to comments, reflections. And this is really the wisdom of the community itself. Uh, Alex. Alex, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So, um, I was wondering about, uh, you talked about your experience when your, your uncle passed away, and you mm -hmm. were, like the chair bawling on your um, pillow or whatever, and you said that it was only later that you like, powered out, and then were able to, like, you, you used the metaphor of, like, dropping into a deeper level. I was guess, um, Yeah, um, so I think the um, kind of the shortest uh, answer I can uh, give to describe that is, uh, so the ouch of it uh, when I was young was it was sort of, I felt trapped. I felt like uh, I didn't know what to do with it. When I was young, it was too much, it really hurt, and I felt just lost in it as though I was spinning. And later, um, I when I was older and I started hearing the voice of another, kind of the arising of you, um, about um, this larger context, that part of being human, part of the humanity, is the ouch. And it also means our mortality. It means that there is this experience and that it's not individual, it's actually universal. And so feeling into that universality and uh, is the dropping down into the ouch of it. And, but dropping into the ouch of it not as the individual collapse, but as the opening to the all of kind of our experience, not just individual, the natural manifestation was kind of kindness, a softening. And that was a different way, a different way of relating. So that was my experience. The concept of the guardians? Yeah. Um, so mindfulness uh, or the awareness or the attention itself uh, is extremely powerful. It has its own qualities of just being in relation to our experience. It has the capacity to unravel or untangle what we're stuck with but sometimes it's not quite enough. 
because we can have um, a habit or a pattern or something that's particularly strong, and it's as though we need just a little bit more of something to help us with the experience and to say, yeah, I, I don't know if that's actually what I want to be doing here. And so that's where it's said that these two guardians come in. Is It's almost like an extra resource that comes in to support us in that moment. And so the guardians are, uh, as I was talking about, both that inner voice and that outer voice. So it's the, the conscience and the concern. So the conscience is the inner voice about, uh, it's almost like that, well, this is, it's, we can hear our own inner moral compass almost talking to us. And it's like we can see the mind kind of rationalizing away what we're about to do. And yet there's a small kind of inner voice that's almost telling us, eh, the feel of this, the intuition, I don't, this doesn't quite feel like it's beneficial. And so that's the first guardian that arises. And it's sort of like that is a protection. The other guardian is to say it's on the outside. It's the external manifestation of that. So it's the, it's the voice that says, if this entire community were about to find out, and it was about to be headline news that what I'm about to do is X, how would that be received? And that is said to be the guardian that comes up. The challenge is that we can often use that as a way of, as kind of the quote was talking about, of almost like blaming, shame, or guilt, but that's not the intention. The intention is that it's a way of being able to kind of give us a little support in the moment to just a pause, a moment of reflection, and then we can learn from what is happening in that moment. And if we transgress, if we make some uh, mistake, that's what part of uh, being human is, this process. We make mistakes. And so then we get the feedback and we learn. And so that's, that's one way I would talk about it. Does that help? How, how, can, you, yeah, how can you use the two guardians? Yeah, when it's the internal experience. Um, well, it's a, I would um, suggest and see in your own experience, if this is true, that it's the, um, the same process of the reflection internally. So it's as though if I were to just punish and self-criticize and berate myself, would that be supportive? Would that be beneficial? And if I were to let my closest friends and family nearest me, know that what I was doing was berating and being critical and really judging myself for this moment. What advice might they offer? And so it's the same kind of reflection, but it's more of an internal process. And so it's, again, it's a way of, um, it, can, it can be a way of support. It's an addition to the mindfulness itself. So the way that they're talked about is actually they're often categorized that way. But the categorization, it's interesting because they're flipped. So if we think about the first, uh, and let me just go back to, um, and I'll pull it here. The first uh, categorization, uh, when we look at um, both the view and the intention, those are said to be the panya factors, the wisdom factors. So it's interesting that it starts with wisdom. Right? It actually doesn't start necessarily with the sila, with the ethical conduct. It starts with the wisdom factors. And then the other pieces, the action, the livelihood, um, 
and the speech, so speech, action, livelihood, those are said to be the ethical conduct. That's the sila, right? And then the last piece of the effort, the mindfulness and the concentration, those are said to be the samadhi. That is the actual practices themselves. And so the interesting piece is that what the setting up of the Eightfold Path, these different pieces, and the three categorizations of uh, wisdom, uh, the ethical training, and then the actual practices, the concentration training, wisdom's at the front. And that's saying that at first we need to have a view. We need to have an understanding both of heart and mind that sets us in the right direction. And the way that we often get that is just by the voice of others. And so that's a wonderful kind of piece emphasizing the relational quality of path. So we have to often hear it first. And then once we hear it, it allows us to then, on the faith piece, take on the ethical conduct. And then that ethical conduct sets the ground for the practices. And when we do the practices, we then come right back to the wisdom. And, but we know the wisdom not conceptually. We know it directly from our own internal experience, from the practices. Yeah, uh, it's a very uh, big question. So I just want to honor the question. Um, and I would say that um, in my own experience, um, and um, I have a little bit of trauma in my background, so I've, I've ways that I've worked with it. And I would say the, uh, the biggest piece, uh, first of all, is kindness. So really having kindness, compassion, sense of care, and a long view uh, is kind of a first element. The second element um, is really to start to, um, as much as we can, work with the experience not on the conceptual or even the uh, kind of mood or emotional level because often that's where the patterns are cycling and they get stuck and we can just repeat them again and again. The past repeats itself in the present. It plays itself out over and over again. Instead, we can drop into the body itself and start to work through the body because the emotions and the thoughts will manifest in the body. And so we can work below the cognitive level. And when we start to work in this way, it's, it's really important to uh, both have um, a larger container of support. So that means you know, family, friends, it means... Uh, therapists, you know, experts, all of those things that can help with the external, but then it's also starting to develop our own intuitive sense about how do we integrate this? How do we start to work with this? The challenge is that the pull of the experience, the pull of the trauma itself tends to be like a spiral, that once it gets started, it'll set in motion and pull us down. And so what we first need to work with is how do we work with small spirals? Not the trauma itself, but just small things of difficult thoughts or even views about ourself that are small. A moment, we make a mistake, we're self-judgmental, and we work with those small spirals so that we then have the skills to start to work with the bigger spirals that can pull us down. Um, so there's a lot that can be said, but I, I would emphasize it's really the, the kindness, the compassion, the long view, as well as as much as you can, working more with the felt sense of the experience rather than engaging with the content itself. And remember support. Remember support in all of its forms, including even animal friends. Petting 
uh, uh, dogs or cats is wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I have a question about the two um, inner voice and then the concern. Do they ever contact each other? I mean, I know most of the time they do, like you have your own intuitive gut and like the collective wisdom is something else. Do they, like, how do they meet or do you have to compromise your intuition? Yeah. Um, so the, um, the biggest piece I would say is um, start with your own awareness and your own intuition, which is that the, the two guardians that I mentioned are often talked about as when we, we need them most. It's like the last support. But most of the time, we don't need those two guardians. We can stay with our own experience. We can stay with the awareness itself. And so we can stay with our own authority, our own um, wisdom, and not give that up uh, to, to somebody else. And so the way um, that they can relate is that the outer piece of kind of reflecting. It's reflecting on what would the wise do. So it's a subset of those that we actually look to and say, oh, there's some wisdom there. What would the wise do? And the inner voice is, it's almost like we're asking that inner wisdom, right? So it's the, it's the wisdom manifest externally, collectively, dispersed, and the wisdom that is manifest internally. And so that's how they can uh, work together. Yeah. Um, so I'm aware of time. <laughs> And I think I will probably uh, uh, stop here. But just to say that this is not the, the end of the discussion, I hope that you continue to explore uh, this area and to really work with it in your own practice. Uh, I will stay after if there are uh, any other questions. So let's just end with a moment. Uh, because again, I want to just um, appreciate the fact that we're here as a group and a community. So just in whatever way you'd like, you don't even have to change your posture or close your eyes. Just come into the present moment again for just a moment. So just allow yourself um, to connect in whatever way you can with just a sense of appreciation for everyone in this room. We're here as a community. And so I'll offer a simple phrase, and you can change the phrase uh, if you find something that's more supportive. But the phrase is this. May our time and practice together be for our benefit as well as the benefit of all beings and the planet itself. So this is the larger aspiration, the context. May our time and practice together be for our benefit as well as the benefit of all beings and the planet itself. So thank you, and please take what was useful and leave what was not. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.